0: Hey, welcome to I Used to Be a Therapist. I am genuinely so glad you're here with me today. This is the fifth episode in the Transformation Project series. And today I am sharing the interview I did with Melissa Corkum. Melissa is a certified life coach and parenting coach, and she has lots of experience under her belt. Melissa and her husband live in Maryland. They have six kids, four still live at home. So along with her parents and granddaughter, they are enjoying real multi-generational living. The story you're going to hear today is a story that needs to be told. The insights and truths she shares will speak into your life, I promise Melissa is a transracial adoptee and an adoptive parent of four kiddos. In our conversation, Melissa talks vulnerably about some of the challenges and experiences that she's had as a transracial and intercultural adoptive parent. She has a lot of wisdom for all of us, whether we're parenting right now or not. She shares truths and insights that will add value to your life. This is a story you won't want to miss. Let's listen in. I'm Dr. Wendy Bruton, and I used to be a therapist. Welcome to my podcast. Each week, I'll be sharing life, stories, interviews, and information that I know will be of value to you and to your life and to the lives that you touch. If you need a therapist or just someone who used to be a therapist... I hope that this is a place where you feel valued, valuable, and learn to move forward from what you used to be. I'm so glad you're here. Melissa, thank you so much for being here. I'm very, very grateful you would join us, and I'm excited to hear your story. Wendy, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Good. So let's just start. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do during the day, your kiddos, your partner, all that stuff. Yeah. So my husband and
1: I live in Maryland. We are parents to six kids through birth and adoption. Four of them still live at home and one of them has a daughter. So we have four kids and a granddaughter living at home. And my parents also live in an attached home apartment in our house. So we're practicing this very (laughs) multi-generational living situation. Um, Besides being a transracial adoptee myself and also an adoptive parent, I am a certified professional life coach, essential oil specialist, certified Enneagram coach, and empowered to connect parent trainer. And so what that just means is during the day, I like to help parents figure out their kids. And so I'm a parent coach and, um, when we're recording this, it's April 2020, and so we're spending a lot of time at home because of the COVID pandemic.
0: <laughs> yes, we are. And parents are with their
1: kids all the time. All the time. So it has given uh, me a unique perspective and opportunity to mm-hmm. serve parents because their problems are kind of all on steroids right now. If they had challenges, a lot of times, right, we could sweep them under the rug or ignore them because our kids were in school. And so now we're kind of having to deal with all the
0: things. Yeah. It's just really in our face. Yeah. Everything. I mean, all relationships, I think, not just with kids, but with partners and with anybody that you're in a small space with all the time. It just... Yeah, we're we're faced with a lot of stuff. We were talking about that on another interview I was doing, and we were talking about how everybody's like in each other's faces.
1: Yeah, you have to have a really good plan for boundaries. I am an extrovert. So <laughs> being quarantined with eight other people in one house actually is much better to me than say if I were a single person and right. stuck by my lonesome. But there are definitely challenges
0: when you're tripping over each other all the time. All the time. Okay, so I was interested in hearing what an empowered to connect parent trainer is.
1: So, empowered to connect is a parenting model, and it came out of a professional counseling model that was developed by Dr. Karen Purvis and David Cross. Mm -hmm. And the professional model is called Trust Based Relational Intervention or TBRI, and basically just recognizes that for kids who come from hard places, which is a Term that Dr. Purvis coined. And basically, that's kids who have had a stressful pregnancy or stressful birth, uh, neglect, abuse, some of those complex traumas in early childhood, even changing primary caregiver. That what has broken kind of in relationship uh, in terms of their nervous system and how it changes the way that they experience and perceive the world, that those things can heal only in. A healthy, safe relationship. And it kind of teaches professionals and parents how to do that for kids who have um, come from
0: complex trauma. That's exciting. So you got trained in how to train parents.
1: Yeah. Trained in how to train parents to do that. I know. So when we adopted our first in our first adoption. So we had two kids by birth first, and then we adopted a toddler from Korea in 2009. And basically we thought we were great parents. We had raised this three-year-old and five-year-old, you know, for, Mm -hmm. you know, a whole five years. And we thought we were doing a really good job. And then when he came home, nothing worked quite like it had worked for our healthy, attached, neurotypical kids. And so we had to kind of relearn parenting all over again Mm. and we're kind of go big or go home people. So instead of just learning, relearning parenting, we relearned parenting and then figured we would help other
0: people do it too. That's exciting. I mean, that is really exciting that you can use that and use your experience and with other folks too. So we're going to talk a lot about today, about your story, about change and maybe an event that changed you in your life and how you moved through it and what happened on the other end of it. So we're going to talk about the change, but I want you to talk a bit about the change, your life before this changing experience.
1: I alluded a little bit towards it, but we kind of were the typical American family, right? We had, Mm -hmm. we got married young, we had two healthy kids. They were three and five, a boy and a girl. And, and like I said, we kind of thought we were awesome parents. I was a stay at home mom. Mostly I had some, a couple of side hustles and my husband worked a kind of typical nine to five job in the IT industry. And so Mm -hmm. I think we just thought we were a lot like everyone else.
0: Mm -hmm. And what were your expectations of your future? Did you have an expectation of the way things were going to look as you went forward in life?
1: A little bit. I am very much a future-oriented person in the sense that, you know, I kind of am always moving quickly and I'm kind of moving from one thing to the next. But I think because I wasn't expecting to marry young and have kids as young as we did. And so I think a little bit at this point, I kind of thought like, I shouldn't even have expectations because things mm-hmm. could change so quickly. And that's certainly been even more reinforced throughout, you know, the years following. But you know, I did think I had some expectations, just really basic ones. Like we had kids young. So they were that probably meant we were gonna be empty nesters young, right? Like we right. had kids in our early 20s. And I thought, oh gosh, by like our late 40s, like we could be traveling the world without kids, right? Right. So, you know, we didn't make really concrete plans, but I think there were some kind of things we took for granted about what our future might look like.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Just people, if you would think about it, it would look a specific way. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that event that changed you. Let's talk about like, was it like a one-time event or was it over time? How did that look for you? Well, I mentioned that
1: we adopted. And so that happened in 2009. And and that really was part of what we envisioned our future to look like. My mm-hmm. husband, Knew from an early age, even all the way back to high school, that he wanted adoption to be part of his story, that he wanted to provide a home, a home for kids who might not otherwise have one. Mm-hmm. And ironically, you know, he met and married me, and I'm an adult adoptee. And I had, you know, pretty positive feelings and experiences about my. Journey as an adoptee. And so I thought, okay, yeah, for sure. We could definitely be an adoptive family. You know, our family already kind of knows what that looks like. I know that our extended mm-hmm. family will be on board. And so I think, from a big answer, adoption is really the thing that has changed and molded and defined us, especially over the last decade. I think the kind of more acute or one time thing was so after we adopted in 2009, we Um, adopted out of birth order in 2012. And we brought home three older kids from Ethiopia, more or less all at the same time. And they were unrelated. And we thought we were prepared because at this time we had done the empowered to connect parent training. We knew that we were going to do it differently than we had done it with our youngest son. But there were so many challenges and things that we still didn't anticipate in that transition process and so many things that we didn't know about attachment and how hard it could be to parent a child who didn't really want to be parented or didn't really want to attach to you. And so I think really the critical point for us was when one of our kids was really struggling with mental health challenges and we realized that there just weren't the kinds of resources and practical support that we needed that we kind of always assumed would be there if we needed it. You know, no one prepared us that we could be backed into a corner with a child who wasn't really safe in our home, but with really no other options Mm -hmm. for how to keep her safe and keep the rest of our family safe.
0: Right. And so what did that look like? I mean, how did you find what you needed? Well, it was a lot of prayer. It was a lot of
1: questions a lot of reaching out a lot of resilience you know we just couldn't stop we had to be really stubborn and very loud and we really had to learn self advocacy mm-hmm. but in the end in our particular situation and and every family that that i work with is different some need levels of care like we needed for our da- our daughter who, that can't be given really inside a typical family unit Um, Sometimes that looks like residential treatment. Sometimes it looks like a shorter, you know, day program. In our case, it looked like what I call a long-term respite situation where we were able to find another family to kind of partner with us along, come alongside us and help us create a safe space for our daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, But we, you know, did a lot of looking, we got backed into a lot of corners in that process. And even to one point, uh, she was doing a short term mental health stay and we were trying to just get her stable. And, you know, we were saying, we just need more help. She needs more help. We all need more support. And someone told us, um, you know, we're really sorry, but we, We can't give you any more support than you already have. And that looked like, you know, outpatient psychiatric support, outpatient therapy, things like that, Um, unless she puts one of you in the hospital. And
0: and I just thought that's just not okay. (laughs) No. And I imagine you thought too, I can't be the only person going through this. Like there have to be other people that have done this. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of
1: great places to look for help. There are a lot of fantastic support groups on Facebook, and that's really kind of where we found the most help. But there were some people who understood it and maybe had walked alongside it or alongside other families, but a lot of them were still in the midst of the hard. And so they were saying, Yeah, we get it, us too, but also we're in the middle of it. And so we don't really know how to get out of it.
0: Yeah. And so the system basically just, wasn't adequate.
1: Right. And, you know, some children who are adopted have been adopted out of the foster care system. And so they have state insurance or yeah. other ways or means of finding the kinds of treatment that we needed. Um, in this particular case, in our particular case, we kind of felt like we were almost being punished for having private insurance. So in our state, there were really no higher levels of care that were available to private pay or private insurance patients. Pretty much everything had to be through um, some kind of like Medicaid or something like that. And and our daughter didn't qualify for that. Um, And she also didn't qualify for that with her particular diagnosis. So we kind of fell into this weird gap and really felt like at a certain point, what happened with this private situation is we felt like we had to, you know, just find resources for ourselves because the system was taking too long and it was continuing to get, you know, worse and worse. And Mm -hmm. so by no fault of her own or our own, it was just the dynamics of all the things. And, and again, you know, it's like having, um, like a cancer patient or a -hmm. child with cancer and, and the treatments aren't available. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Was there a a time maybe that you you just realized, oh my gosh, a moment maybe a moment in time when you just realized, wow, my life is gonna change or it has just changed and now I'm kind of lost or I don't know what you had felt but like was there this moment that you experienced that? There
1: was definitely a point in time when we realized. I think for so long we had defined success as being able to help her while she still lived in our home. And, you know, no parent wants to think that they're not adequate to be there for their child. Mm -hmm. And so I think when we realized that we needed a level of care that was not going to happen inside our four walls, then that was really a big wake-up call. And so Mm -hmm. at that point, you know, the definition of success went from being able to keep her at home to keeping her safe in whatever that looked like. And so I think, you know, I talk to parents a lot about what our definition of success is. And I think a lot of times we come in with one and if we're faced with a really big change like this or a really big crisis, we have to pivot that definition Mm -hmm. because otherwise an old definition of success that's not working for our current circumstances kind of paralyzes us from the solution that might actually help us. And so as soon as we pivoted to think the solution might not be inside our four walls, like it might not be an outpatient because we had literally tried everything. You know, we had seen a trauma competent therapist, we had tried EMDR, we had done medication, we had done short-term stays, we had done partial respite. I mean, we had done so many things. We tried everything. Um, is that redefining like oh, we could look outside of our four walls for her to stay somewhere or live somewhere that wasn't with us and we could still be her support system and we could still be her parents, uh, then that opened up some other possibilities for us.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you got to that place, I mean, it would probably take a while to get to that place. First of all, (laughs) you'd have to go through a, a big process with that. But once you get there, I mean, what is the feeling? I mean, can you even come up with a feeling word about what that felt like for you?
1: I think there was a lot of sadness around it. There was also a lot of anger. I think our lives were just so chaotic. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Purvis has often said that sad looks like mad, or sometimes, yeah, sometimes sad can look like mad. So mm-hmm. I think we were kind of a hot mess of sure. of sadness and madness and confusion and not really sure. And I have done a lot of work around radical acceptance, and that has really helped because, mm-hmm. you know there're still times when it creeps in and you think oh, we're such a failure as a family right because we had to look for these solutions so yeah i would say for sure there was a there was a grief process and mm-hmm. and all the things that kind of go with
0: grief mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about radical acceptance i love that you said those words <laughs> because that is that's a big thing for me is this radical acceptance is so important in life right to move past big deals like this
1: it kind of was an accident. I stumbled
0: upon it. Someone had actually suggested that
1: DBT or dialectical behavior therapy would be a good option for our daughter. And so I I wasn't sure even what it was. And so I went Googling it. And one of the pieces of that is radical acceptance. And honestly, I don't know enough about DBT or even how radical acceptance works in that to even know, but I just remember hearing the words Radical acceptance and not even knowing exactly what it means from a therapeutic or DBT perspective, but just thinking, oh, radical acceptance, like what does that look like? And so just those words, I think rattled around in my brain for a long time. And kind of was a place to give me peace. It gave me words to something that I needed, you know, to stop wrestling, stop pushing back. Cause I'm a person who really would prefer to be in control. Right. And and this was a situation that I felt like I had very little control over in the long run. And so this radical acceptance, I think really helped us find peace with what was going on. And then even just from a bigger picture, we still have kids in our home who have special needs and just even accepting what their skill levels were, their growth path, you know, how to parent them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, all of that, a lot now in my head revolves around this idea of radical acceptance. Right, that I can, if I radically accept that my child needs four thousand reminders a day, mm-hmm. right, that I'm a lot less frustrated about giving them. Mm-hmm. Four thousand than reminders. If I think I shouldn't have to do this. Right. The thing is, is I have to. So mm-hmm. if I can just make peace with that, then we'll all be at a better place. And, and I think the counterintuitive thing for me was radical acceptance gave me pause. It helped me stop, but weirdly and counterintuitively, I think once I wasn't fighting against some of the things that I couldn't change, then things were able to change. Right. Once I gave into the fact that I have a child who needs a lot of reminders, then There was some free energy there Mm -hmm. to help be able to help make progress in other ways. Or it meant that without the tension all the time, he could get to a place where he didn't need 4,000 reminders. So it's kind of this counterintuitive thing that once we accept where we are, then that opens up an opportunity for things to change.
0: It's absolutely a brilliant explanation of radical acceptance. I mean, so I did my dissertation on DBT. So yeah.
1: So yeah, so you were the person I, I needed. I love, 6 years ago.
0: <laughs> right. I love DBT. One of the best things about DBT I think is radical acceptance because what DBT says about radical acceptance is that you cannot be effective in a place where you're not functioning in reality. So if you're functioning outside of reality, you can never be effective inside reality. And so what you're saying is exactly it. Like the reality is Your kiddo needs 4,000 reminders, but you function as if oftentimes people function as if they don't like they should not. So I'm not going to. Right. So once you can get to a place of saying, yes, they do. So now I'm going to function in this reality. So then you have the chance to change it. And you can be effective in changing some things right inside it if you function inside of that reality. So that's I mean, that is exactly what you've done and how you've used radical acceptance. I love that.
1: Good. Well, I'm, I'm glad that I'm doing it justice in the way you did. talk about it to
0: people. <laughs> you are doing it justice. That's very good. You know, I was going to ask, too. I mean, that is such a huge event. I mean, it happens in so many people's lives, so many people's lives. Sometimes it's just quiet like people don't talk about it. People don't talk about how their kiddo has impacted their home because they love them and they want to protect them and they want to whatever it is that they're doing. So I love that you're you're giving voice to this. That's so great. Being an advocate for these families and these kiddos. It's so needed out there. But in the middle of this whole thing that you're going through, I mean it had to impact other relationships. You had five other kids and your husband there and your community. Can you talk a little bit about how that situation impacted relationships in your family?
1: It definitely is a super strain on marriages if you're not both on the same page. And thankfully, because we did this parent training together from a parent perspective, we were mostly on the same page. And I think that's really probably what saved our marriage. Mm -hmm. But there were pieces of radical acceptance that came in stages And so sometimes we were one step ahead or behind each other when it came to looking for the next level of treatment. You know, when should we start exploring medication? When should we start exploring out-of-home options? And so trying to stay in sync in that way, Mm -hmm. it really affected the relationship with our other kids because this one child felt like she required so much of our time And I think we chased after this false reality that if we just gave her more and more and more, then that would help make her need us less or less or less. And so I now coach parents to, you know, really prioritize their other kids, even though it feels like one child's kind of the squeaky wheel, just because from our experience, you you know, it could go on forever. And in our case, it went on for years where we really neglected other relationships in the family because they didn't feel as needy. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a mistake in a lot of ways. Um And then just from an energy perspective, we, you know, didn't have the energy to do all of the things in the community mm-hmm. that we may had done before. Mm-hmm. So we certainly, you know, lost touch with some people and there were certainly people who didn't understand what was going on. So yeah, I, for sure it affected, you know, all different aspects of our life in terms of relationships.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, you said you would have done something different about spending time with your kids in a different way or other kids in a different way. How would that look? I mean, how do you coach parents to do that practically? Because I've used this word before but that one kiddo who's kind of the person that's just their behavior and their presence and their needs are so loud right like yeah like, like, that's the word that comes to my mind because it's just so loud they just are so big the the, the their personality or their their needs are so big it just Outweighs everything else, and being able to put that aside practically, how does that look? I think one thing is lowering
1: the bar, so a lot of times we were like, she can't go to respite because they're not going to do things the way we would do things, or she's going to get away with murder or right. you know all these things. you know they're not going to parent her with the same expectations that we would. Um, I also think again, we were chasing this idea that if we ignored some of her needs, that that was going to create bigger problems or reinforce some of her, um, abandonment fears and things like that, which we knew were really the cause of a lot of her insecurities. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was this fear that we could make it worse if we didn't show her that we were available to meet her needs 24 mm-hmm. seven. Right. So from a practical perspective, I really encourage parents to get space and, tell them that it's not just a break for them. It's also a break for their kids because kids with attachment challenges, some of the hardest work that they do is to function inside a family. And so one of the things it took us years to do was we were a homeschooling family at the time and I was homeschooling all six kids. And I wish I would have put her in school earlier. You know, it Mm -hmm. gave, school gave her the break to function in an environment that was not nearly as triggering, and it gave us a break as well. And so I think we always thought it was a little one-sided. Like we needed the break, and so we would should feel guilty for sending her to school just so we could have a break. But we didn't realize the benefits that she would get from having input from other people during that space, and and just from her whole nervous system being able to relax for six hours while she was at school um, was invaluable. So so those are some of the practical things. Um, and then just being intentional about carving out time for you and your other kids and making it a priority that it can't be interrupted by anything. That's not a true emergency. And, and if someone's throwing a fit when you leave, then sometimes that's the way it has to be. Um, but yeah, just giving yourself permission. I think most people didn't need so much the practical. I mean, there's always some tactical things that are tricky, but
0: they just needed more permission Mm
1: -hmm. to prioritize a little differently.
0: Interesting. I like that. I liked you saying it was intentional. Like you make intentional effort to find time with your other kids. That's really important. Really, really important. Yeah, because they don't
1: ask for it, right? They're not as loud. They're not (laughs) as as loud. You Needy kids.
0: And sometimes they get quieter, right? They get They just get quieter because the loud is too loud and they just back up, you know, it's better just to be quiet and I don't have to deal with anything.
1: Yeah. And sometimes we think that's almost a blessing. You know, one Mm -hmm. of the things that I've discovered along the way is the Enneagram. And I don't know if you're an Enneagram person or not. Are you? So I think even just understanding, even though we can't type our kids, right, is to just even understand, are they people who are generally withdrawing, like, are they in the withdrawing stance or are they going to stick up for their, what they need and what they want? Um, And so recognizing that because otherwise, you know, we can misinterpret behaviors and that can be a slippery slope.
0: Yeah. That's so true. And just watching what kind of behaviors that they're exhibiting is going to be really, really helpful, but it's also hard because they're not loud. The other person's loud and So they are taking all the attention. And so it's hard to kind of get back to those other kiddos. Okay. What I wanted to ask too is you had said a little bit about your friends, but I always want to talk to people about when they're going through this kind of stuff, had you created a, I'm going to use the word tribe or a community of people before this happened? And did you have that, you know, already or Did you create it in the middle of it? Or what did that look like for how you found support outside of your family? So we did have kind of a tribe, if you will, before
1: all of this started. It was accidental in some ways. And when I do pre-placement work with families and kind of talking through, you know, what I wish we had done, building up that tribe looks a little bit different. You know, it's it's your friends, but it's also already having a mental health professional, which we didn't have coming into this and also having a respite family and things like that. But we did, we kind of had a church small group that developed a life of its own. We called it book club because we had intentions of reading books and discussing them, but it really turned into come to our house, open a bottle of wine and eat food club nice. and just you know talk about life and, and have good conversation. And I think- the thing that sustained that tribe through the challenge was we were the hosts of this gathering before all of the crazy started. And one of the things that I think we did well, and it was kind of by accident, was we kept it going. You know, when life got hard, we didn't say, we just can't do this right now. Like, I think, guys, we need to take a break. Is We were kind of determined. We're really stubborn people. Yeah. And so we were like, well, we Wednesday nights is when we have book club and we're just going to keep having these people come over. And I think what happened almost by accident, but it was beautiful was they did kind of grow up around us and strengthen us through this really tough time because there was this space already carved out for them to be around us. So we didn't have to because we didn't have the energy or even the foresight to, we didn't have to reach out for them to be there so much. Mm -mm. They just showed up every Wednesday, like they'd been showing up for years Mm -hmm. and we just kept opening our doors. And, and sometimes that was really messy. Sometimes I didn't have food ready or sometimes we were, a kid had run away, right? And so we would meet them at the door and be like, "Uh, you can just join the search party, right? So they entered into our space on Wednesday nights and they came along for whatever was going on in the family. And they weren't adoptive and foster parents. They weren't people who really got what was going on. A lot of them were in different stages of life. You know, some weren't married yet but they were people that just showed up for us week after week after week and didn't judge us and offered as much practical support as they could. And and those were the people actually who were able to do some respite for us because before it got really hard, they had already just been in the background of our family developing relationships with our kids. And so when we needed help, it wasn't like we were sending our kids off with like strangers kind of crazy strangers or even like we could even, we didn't even... Couch it as like respite like we need a break from you, so you're going here like you know th- we would say like you know, um Aunt Debbie is really looking forward to hanging out or she needs some help in her garden next weekend, like she'd love to pay you a couple dollars to come help her, you know, like we were able to just create more organic feeling
0: breaks and they that. were able
1: to um because our kids came home as older, so even they needed to trust these people it wasn't like they were like three year olds you know we're you you know, you obviously want your three year old to trust where you're taking them, but you kind of they also don't get a whole lot of choice, right? You just right. kind of like take them to places that you know are safe, and you're like, hey, we're here. This is the deal. It's a little harder, right, with teenagers because you can't pick them up under your arm and put them in a car seat and take them to where they need to go. So we right. need, needed their buy in uh, to go hang out with other people as well, and so that did create this organic tribe that we ended up relying on a lot that we had no idea we were going to need.
0: What a blessing that is.
1: Yeah, it was great.
0: <laughs> I I love that. I think that is why people need to create tribe, like create community for themselves before there's crisis. Because honestly, there's going to be, you know, like life just happens and everybody's going to have that. And if they have a community that is around them, they can be there for the people who need it. And then people will be there for you when you need it. And so I... Love that story. That's beautiful. Okay. I want to hear a lesson that you learned through this experience that you could not have learned any other way.
1: Man, we have learned so much just about people, about why they behave certain ways, a lot of things about the brain, and we wouldn't have learned them except out of necessity. And so I tell people a lot of times, like, I wouldn't ever wish our situation, like, on my worst enemy a lot of times, right? Because we have lived through really, really hard things. But I also wouldn't change it for the world because mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to give up so many of the things. Like, our compassion for others is so much greater because we look at people's behaviors and we see be- beyond that. And, and instead of thinking, like, what's wrong with you? We think, you know, what's what's their story? You know, what made them that way? And our kids think that way too. And you know, if we had stuck to being that stereotypical American family with two kids and we hadn't walked through hard, you know, our kids are 14 and 16, 14 and 17 now. And, and I think they would be a lot more self-absorbed about the whole, about their whole life and their whole situation without these experiences. And, um, and it's left indelible marks on them that I wish I could take back, honestly, because They've lived through a lot of trauma as well. But mm-hmm. again, they're such beautiful
0: human beings because of it. So I don't know. It's a hard trade off. Yep. It made them who they are. So let's talk a little bit about where you are now. And we had talked a little bit before about this, or, you know, just we had chatted back and forth a little about PTSD and just trauma, the post traumatic expression really, of what happens in people's lives when they go through real traumatic events. So the impact of that on your family, I'd love to hear like where you are now, a little bit about PTSD, but also the good things. So in the post-world,
1: kind of post-crisis, one of the things that I discovered and learned about was something called blocked care. And I wish I had known about this when I was feeling like such a failure as a person and a parent, because we did hit a point in time with our daughter where we felt like, I just felt like, I just don't care what happens to you. Like just someone find a solution, like, you know, whatever, like, it doesn't matter if I feel like it's a good solution or not, just, we need something to change. And, um, and with another child in our family too, I I got to the point where it was like, you know what? If you don't want to be here, don't be here. Like we gave it our best shot. (laughs) You gave it your best shot. Like, you know, you get so apathetic about just what's going on as a self-protective mechanism. But then I also would think like you're supposed to unconditionally love your kids. And this feelings of apathy didn't feel congruent with that. And Mm -hmm. so I was left feeling like, well, it must be something wrong with me. Right. Parents should love their kids forever. (laughs) And here I was like just feeling like i wanted to give up. Mm-hmm. And so i wish i had known about blocked care and about this thing that's going on in your nervous system when you're in a relationship that doesn't that isn't reciprocal like our nervous system is expecting. And Dan Hughes was the first person that i heard about this from and he's a psychologist and he's written a bunch of parenting books. And when i read about that i thought bingo like i was in blocked care. I you know, we had a child who had blocked trust. She had a lot of trouble trusting other people for understandable reasons, but I just had never stopped to think how that would impact me as a parent, how her nervous nervous system would impact my nervous system. So that has been a big part of it. So I think, you know, there's a lot of talk in our world about secondary PTSD, compassion fatigue, mm-hmm. um, you know, caregiver trauma and things like that. But I also encourage families who have had really aggressive or violent kids in their home to name their experience as primary PTSD. I mean, we certainly have secondary PTSD from hearing where our kids came from and things like that. And we certainly have compassion fatigue. I think blocked care, though, the speaks to a much more specific and intense experience that adoptive and some special needs parents have, because it can certainly happen with kids on the spectrum because they don't Absolutely. reciprocate relationship the same way that we're expecting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then also recognizing, again, this PTSD. And, and when we read about PTSD and then you think about all the expectations that we have to drop around ourselves, um, then that's helpful too, because there's not as much... Out there to talk about PTSD from this kind of weird complex situation that a lot of parents have walked through it. You know, we talk about war or like acute type things like big car accidents or other things. Um, but then when you read about how kind people with PTSD need to be to themselves, you know, a lot yeah. of those things resonate.
0: It's very true. I mean, trauma is not actually the thing that happens, it's the experience of the thing that happens. And so people can experience trauma through lots of different things it doesn't have to be big it's so true okay i want to hear about where you are now let's talk about where you are now what are some things that you might be doing now that you never dreamed you'd be doing so i never would have
1: expected to kind of monetize this parent coaching situation and so a couple of years ago i just felt really, you know, life coaching was getting bigger and bigger. And I was a blogger back when blogging was kind of the way we communicated in the social media world. And we've always been kind of open books. I believe a lot in authenticity. Mm -hmm. And as we were telling our story and as a way that kind of honored our children, you know, we try not to throw them under the bus or name them, or, you know, fortunately when there's six of them, you can name genders and people with and be pretty generic, but we did feel like we needed to speak authentically enough to let people know that they weren't alone. And as we did that, we would get emails and messages and phone calls from people saying, we're living that we don't know what to do. And so out of that was born this parent coaching Opportunity. And I also have a podcast with a now good friend of mine who lives clear on the other side of the country. And we're able to walk alongside parents and use our experience, which hasn't been pretty, right? But Mm -hmm. we're redeeming it by using what we've learned to help other parents. And so I like to think of it as like we are the help and the resource and the support that I was looking for Mm -hmm.
0: five and six years ago that we just couldn't find. Yeah. I love that. I've listened to your podcast and you have amazing collective experience on that podcast with your partner on the podcast. Cause she, you, all three of you like have this whole thing covered basically, right? Like the whole experience of, of adoption covered and I love your perspective. So people out there, you need to go listen to that. We'll put it, we'll put the link in the show notes.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, um, I'm an adoptee and an adoptive mom. And then my co-host Lisa, Uh, is a first mom or birth mom. So she, uh, I wouldn't say forced, but she was a a pregnant teenager in the seventies and placed a son for adoption. Uh, I don't think it would have been her first choice had the situation been different. And she tells her story on the podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So between the two of us, we have lived experience in all three parts of the adoption triad. And we And we do think that that's really important. And then we also try to bring on the podcast as many guests with lived experience as we can. And sometimes they're experts, or they've become experts because of their experience. And sometimes it's just to share a story. Um, But we do want it a place, want it to be a place where people can find, you know, practical tidbits Mm -hmm. um, to apply to their journey for sure.
0: That's great. So that's something that you didn't dream you'd be doing is just kind of doing a podcast and express and telling everybody about your story and being able to, you said, monetize it too. And being a coach and having clients and I bet you find so many people who need to hear, I mean, find so many people who need to have your, your expertise and your uh, experience too, and be able to hear your story very helpful. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, This blocked care that I kind of mentioned has become a a core part of who we are at the Adoption Connection, and we do have a course that holds mom's and dad's hands through that experience, and that has been such a huge gift. It was a huge honor to create, and the experiences and stories that we hear from people who walk through those 30 days with us um, just it's motivating, right, to keep going, and because sometimes it's hard from a PTSD perspective uh, to be in these experiences with families again and ag- again. You know, it triggers you know fears and failure, feelings of failure from our experience, um, and and helplessness, right? Because there are only so many things that we can do, even though we want to be as practical uh, as we can in giving support to families. But sometimes things are just really, really hard. You know, and we can't escape that.
0: Yeah, they just really are. Okay. So I have a couple more questions before we go into my last three questions. But uh, my last three questions I ask everybody. I want to know what would you tell yourself if you would go back, if you could go back to that, you know, yourself before all of this happened, what would you tell yourself if you went back there? that could be encouraging or that somebody who's right there needs to know? So I think from a tactical
1: perspective, it would be die on less hills, fight less battles. The price that you're paying to die on those hills is just not worth it. And I think from an encouraging and motivating perspective, it is, there's always hope. Don't give up that there's so much redemption. So, you know, the other side of the story is our daughter still doesn't live at home. Mm -hmm. but that's not the failure that it sounds like she's stable where she is. And we're celebrating that. And she loves where she is. And we have still have a relationship and we visit and we write and we talk and she still calls us mom and dad and she's just embraced. And we have embraced just this bigger support network around her. And so I wish someone had told us when we felt like our lives were falling apart, that it was going to be okay.
0: That's great. And is there anything else that you might tell people that are going through a really big change in their life, even if it's not the same big change?
1: Yeah, I think a couple things. One is just keep learning. I I think knowledge and teachability got us through a lot of things. We Mm -hmm. learned a lot about ourselves and about other people. I think the other part is this feelings of guilt and shame. Sometimes I think big change, especially if they're not changes in our control, create some feelings of shame. And Brené Brown talks about, Mm -hmm. you know, shame kind of multiplying in secrecy, right? So I think the other caveat to that is be authentic, tell your story, be wise, right? To save people, but tell it because other people need to hear it and you need other people to validate that you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think lastly, people are so much more resilient and stronger than they think they are. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to just keep putting one foot
0: in front of the other. That's so true. Thank you. Those are good words. Good words. Okay. Tell us how we can connect with you, how people who are listening can connect with you, what you have out there, what you have going. We'd love to hear that. So the podcast is the adoption connection. And so you can just search for that
1: on all the places that you find podcasts, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Google podcasts, all the places. And my website is the corkboard So it's just a little play on, on my last name. Mm. And there is a freebie there for your folks, Wendy, oh, thank um, the corkboard online.com slash essentially better life. And that is just this, parent success plan. It's really the foundation for a lot of the work that I do with parents. And mm. I talked about it earlier, really nailing down what your definition of success is in this season of your life, uh, specifically around parenting, if you're parenting, because that really gives us a filter for a lot of other
0: decisions and which hills not to die on. <laughs> I love that. Thank you. That was very generous of you. And we will put the link in the show notes so people can go there and get grab that and. I do also want to plug again, your podcast, because it's um, really helpful. And for folks that are going through that same thing or any kind of stuff with adoption, it's a really helpful, uh, helpful podcast. So, okay. My last three questions, we might know the answer to the first one, but maybe there's something different. So we might we want to hear the first question is we want to hear about an event that changed you.
1: Yeah, well, certainly Our adoptions for sure. And there were four of them, and each one has changed us in a different way, but I would say mostly for the better.
0: Mm, Great.
1: Okay. And second
0: is a person that changed
1: you. So I mentioned this at the beginning. Dr. Karen Purvis was the first person who introduced me to this new idea of parenting, new paradigm in parenting, new way to look at behavior. And that really has shaped a lot. And has impacted so many of my relationships and probably saved a ton of them. And she's no longer with us, but she, her impact on families has been far reaching and continues to be a big, big
0: legacy. Great. And then a book that changed you. Cause I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to have people read more. Okay. I love it. And while
1: we're all stuck at home, there's lots of opportunities to, I feel like curl up with a good book. So I already talked about the Enneagram I was not expecting it to be as transformative. I was a skeptic at first. Uh, and of course now I'm a certified Enneagram coach. So like I said, go big or go home. Um, but <laughs> I think a fantastic primer in that genre is the road back to you by Ian Cron mm-hmm. and Suzanne
0: Stabile. So
1: That's that a, a brilliant a book people to start.
0: Great book. And I will put the link in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for being vulnerable with us, for just coming on and taking your time to be with us. I really appreciate that a lot. Well, thank you so much, Wendy, for giving me
1: the opportunity to share for your platform and what you're doing in the world. I appreciate you as well.
0: All right. Have a great day. We will talk soon. I am so thankful for the opportunity to spend some time with Melissa. She made me think. There are a couple things I wanted to highlight from what she said that stood out to me. First, she said, No one wants to feel that they are inadequate to care for people they love. I think, as parents of hard kiddos or spouses who are watching their partner deteriorate or children watching their aging parents, everyone feels inadequate at times. But there comes a point where we just have to ask for help. We all are doing our best and giving everything that we have, but there comes a time that you need to look outside of yourself to provide what is needed. This can be really hard, really hard. It is a process for sure. But Melissa talks about the need to define success differently, differently than doing everything yourself. Maybe success is your ability to find the resources that can help. She said that when they were looking for the next level of treatment, it was just so hard to come to a decision. She states, we chase after the false reality that if we give more, they need less. This is not true. With sustained mental health issues or sustained medical issues, more will never be enough to make people need less. And this brings me to my second thing, radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is acknowledging and really accepting the reality of what is happening in your life. If it's in parenting, caregiving, losing a relationship or losing a job, anything really. Radically accepting things that are, even if they're bad or hard or wrong or shouldn't be. Radical acceptance helps find peace. Radical acceptance makes us be able to be effective in our reality. When we see people, situations, skill levels, emotional abilities, when we see them for what they really are, then we can rally the resources needed to find a way through. When we live in denial, it is impossible to be effective in your life. The last thing I wanted to point out is that Melissa talks about having her tribe in place before the crisis, and I've talked about this before, but this was a beautiful story. They had people who just showed up, even when it was messy and chaotic and sad. This was her quote. They were people who showed up, didn't judge, and they were able to offer practical support. So who in your life do you have that would do that for you. If you can't name at least three, go make friends. Go find people. Create a tribe. Show up for them. No judging. Just practical support. You will be so glad you did. I am very grateful for Melissa's story. It spoke to my life. It spoke to me as a mom and a Grammy, a daughter and a friend. I hope it added value to your day too. I'm so glad you joined us. Make sure to subscribe so you can get all the episodes and you can help support our podcast by clicking the support button in the show notes or going to our website, essentiallybetterlife.com. Follow me on social at Essentially Better Life and check out my website for all kinds of information on business and personal coaching, my book, and even some great stuff on essential oils thanks for listening blessings and be well my friends